All right, well, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Love child dedications. Congrats, you guys. Hey, you guys, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. Let's go over to the book of Jonah. I'm going to continue our series in the book of Jonah this morning. We're going over to Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And um, in our Bibles, we're going over to page 774. Uh, Before I jump in, I want to pause. um, And uh, I just want to, I don't know, seek to acknowledge and create a safe space. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, it's been a very, very difficult time um, for many people in our culture. Um, Statistics tell us in my own pastoral experience over the last decade reinforces um, that about one in three women are sexually assaulted at some point over the course of their lives. And um, the numbers with guys are are fuzzier, but it's somewhere between one in four and one in six. Um, And I just want you to know, um, we see you and we're with you. Um, This is a safe place for you to share your story and to walk through your pain, you will find um, a supportive community that will love you, um, that will listen to you, and will honor um, your suffering and seek to help you find grace in it. Um, And so we would love to have the honor of doing that, Um, whether it's with one of our leaders and one of our community groups or um, through our partnership with Pathways, uh, the Gospel-Centered Counseling. Um, I just want you to know um, we love you, and uh, this is a safe place for you to um, keep exploring and discovering grace. Uh, All right, so Jonah, Jonah, uh, Jonah. So everyone knows Jesus had... um, 12 disciples, right? Uh, even, if, even if you're not uh, really biblically literate, you've seen the picture of, of Jesus with the 12 disciples at the long table, right? It's like he walked into the restaurant and said, I need a table for 24. And they're like, you only have 12. And he's like, no, we're all going to sit on one side, right? You know the picture I'm talking about? It's like, yeah. Um, so there was a meme that came out a little while ago that made me laugh. Um, I'll put it on the screen behind me. Nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. Um, yeah, that's legitimate, right? Um, that's legitimate. One of the responses that made me laugh, somebody was like, yeah, I only have like two and I'm not even sure they like me. Um, it's real, right? It's real. Adult friendships are hard. Um, and, and, you know, it really is amazing when we think about what happened with Jesus and the 12 disciples, not just because adult friendships are hard but because the 12 guys he collected. Um, so these 12 guys had a lot in common. They were all Jews. They were all raised in the same cultural context. They all understood what it meant to be an Israelite during that season and in that time. But that's where it ends, man. These guys were not passive carbon copies of each other, right? These guys got together, and, and you had guys like James and John. Their nicknames were Sons of Thunder, right? We don't know exactly how they earned that nickname, but these were two fishermen 
and, and we're guessing that more than likely they weren't, you know, just passive, make everybody happy kind of guys, right? These, these guys probably were a little bit of rough and tumble and, and not afraid of mixing it up a little bit. Of course, you had Peter. Every time you read through the New Testament, Peter's sticking his foot in his mouth. I mean, the guy just is uh, assertive and competitive and wants to be first and first to speak, first to act, um, and often uh, first to be embarrassed. Um, but I'm not sure he ever was, honestly. Um, and so, you had Peter. But the two disciples I want to focus on uh, are Simon and Matthew. And you're like, I'm not sure I know those guys. Um, well, Simon, when he's introduced, when, when we find out about Simon, there's, a, there's a, an end to his name. We're introduced to Simon the Zealot, right? And then we're introduced to Matthew. We're introduced to Matthew the tax collector. And what you need to realize, you're like, what's so, what's so interesting about that? Um, that means that they were on the two opposite ends of the political spectrum. Um, the zealots believed that God basically had called them. So they were in Israel, and during this period of time, Rome was the dominant, so they were under Roman rule. They, they had to pay tribute to Rome, and they had to abide by Roman law. And, and the zealots believed that Israel was supposed to be independent. They were supposed to be answered only to God. And, and so the zealots were all about ending Roman rule, even if it meant violence, even if it meant rising up against Rome. And, and, and so they would support coups, and they would support um, violent actions. They were, they, were, they were called zealots for a reason. They were very, very zealous for the independence of Israel and the glory of their nation. Matthew, as a tax collector, was obviously all about assimilation because he collected taxes for Rome, um, and that's how he made his living. He actually collected Roman taxes from um, his, his Jewish brothers and sisters and, and then kept a portion of what he collected. That's how he earned his salary, uh, and then paid the tribute to, to Rome. So he was all about assimilation. He thought the best path forward for Israel was assimilation into Roman rule, right? You're not going to find two more divergent opinions than those two. And the fact that they're called Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector tells us that that was actually like really important, right? It's actually attached to their name, Simon the Zealot, right? What's the most important thing you know about Simon? Well, he's a zealot, right? What's the most important thing Simon knows about himself? Well, he's a zealot, right? That was part, it's part of their identity, right? Matthew the tax collector. It's not just what he did. It was something he was passionate about, right? So, you take these guys that, that have radically different agendas, radically different identities, and then you stick them together in this group called the disciples, and, and the disciples, um, man, they lived in close quarters. They lived under extreme stress. They, they, they weren't in, an, in a club where they could each go to their far corners and not see each other and just kind of see each other from a distance. I mean, these guys lived together and ate together and endured stress together and, and, and solved problems together. I, mean, I can only imagine, you know, when, when you have things that are this charged, it's like, it's like gasoline that's been poured out just waiting for a spark to ignite the flame. How did they do that? How did they not just hang out together, but live with each other and actually live for each other? Well, Jonah's going to show us this morning, right? Jonah, Jonah's going to show us. And, and typical of Jonah, he's going to show us through the tension of irony. Jonah is, is not going to be the model for how to do this well. He is going to model for us how we don't do this well, right? That's what Jonah does. Jonah invites us to see in his failures our failures, uh, in his running, our running. In his inclinations, our inclinations. And so, um, here's the thing Jonah's going to show us this morning. 
how we get in our own way when it comes to experiencing grace. We get in our own way. We make choices. We have values. We, we get in our own way of actually experiencing the fullness of grace. Um, and so let's take a look at Jonah chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 10 uh, through chapter 3, verse 4. I'm going to read it out loud. You can follow along. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so last week, last week we spent time in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2 was, was Jonah's psalm of praise. Um, it, it, it is definitely the happiest part of the book, um, which is itself ironic, um, since it was all about him being sucked down into the darkness of the deep with seaweed wrapped around his head and um, having a near-death experience. Um, but it is the happiest part, because when we read through chapter 2, it is a psalm of praise. Jonah is basically looking back and saying, God, you did this to me. But that's not an accusation. It is a declaration of gratitude. He's saying, you did this to me because you loved me, right? You brought hard grace into my life because I needed that grace to see what I didn't want to see, um, to, to grow in ways I didn't want to grow. And so he wrote this psalm many, many years later. He didn't write this psalm while he was actually in the belly of the fish, right? Many years later, after he had time to grow and reflect on, on everything God had done in his life and what God was doing in that season, he wrote this psalm where he's just like, man, Lord, thank you for your discipline and grace. Thank you for grace that, that was so hard in the moment, but it was exactly what I needed to grow, right? Now, today, we're jumping right back into the story where we left off. So Jonah hasn't learned all these lessons yet. That's, that's down the road. He's in the process of learning them. And, and, and right now, what we see is, is uh, Jonah's uh, journey in the fish ends, and he is um, going to be delivered, right? God speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah up onto the shore. Uh, interesting Hebrew word for vomit. It means to vomit. Um, it is, uh, every time it is used, it speaks of a violent physical reaction, and it's disgusting, right? So whatever happened to Jonah on the shore, it was violently physical, and it was disgusting. Now, I'm guessing everybody in this room knows what it is to vomit. Now, imagine for a moment what it is to be vomited, okay? As bad as it is to vomit, I'm guessing it's worse to be vomited, right? After three days of, of floating around in the acidic stomach and breathing the methane and, and you know, and then to go through that, um, but that's God's grace, right? That was God's grace. God graciously delivered him back to dry land, right? Sometimes God's grace looks like a hug. Sometimes God's grace looks like getting vomited up onto the shore, um, for real. And it was, I think it was a reminder. It was a way at the end of this journey for, for God just to remind Jonah, hey man, remember what just happened, right? It's, I'm glad you repented. I'm glad, I'm glad you're following, but, but I'm just going to give you one little reminder on the way out of the fish. There was a reason you had to be here. Don't make me do it again, right? 
And so then the word of the Lord comes back. In, in, in the beginning of chapter 3, um, God basically is like, hey, Jonah, do you remember chapter 1, verse 1? You remember that? When I, when I told you to arise, go to Nineveh, and warn them? He does it all over again, right? It is Jonah 1, 1, right here in Jonah 3, 1. It's the same exact. It's, it's nearly identical in its commission to Jonah, right? So chapter 3, verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I don't know if he's laying on the beach at this point. I don't know, you know, taking his first clean breath of air in days. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. And we find that Jonah does exactly, it's it's the same beginning as chapter 1. So Jonah arose. Now this time, though, instead of running 500 miles west toward Tarshish, trying to get as far away as possible, he actually arises and goes to Nineveh. Now Nineveh is about 500 miles northeast um, inland. So he he has to take a a pretty extended trip, right? He doesn't just get up and stumble into the city. He he has to actually make a plan. And it's about uh, a month's journey by camel uh, or caravan. It would have been longer if, if, if he walked. Um, but he is, he actually goes, right? He arrives, he gets up, um, and, and he goes, and he spends three days. It tells us that it took three days to proclaim uh, across the city, right? And so he moved into the city, and he proclaimed the message that had been entrusted to him for three days. Now, God said, I want you to proclaim the message I give to you, right? So we assume that the message we have here is the message that was entrusted to him, and it's, it's really simple. Um, Jonah's walking through the city saying, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. In the Hebrew, it's five, five words. I, I don't think he gave a lot more than that. I don't think he was out there giving extended discourses. I think he just walked through the city giving the same warning over and over and over. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I think Jonah hated that message. And I'll tell you why. There is an interesting Hebrew word here. The, the Hebrew word for overthrown, um, it can mean to be overthrown or destroyed, um, but it can also mean to turn, right? And so that means that he's walking around yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's what he's saying. That's what he wants it to mean. <laughs> but it could also mean yet 40 days and Nineveh will turn. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will repent. He's making a prophecy, but he doesn't know what he's prophesying. (laughs) He knows what he wants it to be, um, but it could be either one. He's like, man, 40 days, you're going to be destroyed, but God told him to say a word that could also mean repent. And I think that was the burn his saddle. I think that was the pain in the preaching um, because he longed for their destruction, and he feared that God, because God was gracious, was going to grant them repentance. All right, so I had to scrap. um, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit and give you a glimpse into some of the the inner workings of sermon writing. Uh, I had to scrap my first sermon from this point forward. Um, I had a a whole other sermon written, and uh, Saturday morning um, had to blow it up and and redo it. Um, So the sermon I, I was going to preach was about how you, you just can't flunk out of the school of God, um, right? That, that God uh, won't allow you. Um, that, that you may fail a test, but you can never f- permanently fail in grace because God's pursuit of you is unrelenting. 
God will not allow you to flunk out of the school of grace. You, you will get the lesson. Now, you can change how the lesson goes, right? So, if you em- embrace it and follow and, and yield, God's grace will come alongside and support you and encourage you and strengthen you. If you dig in your heels, God's grace may break your knees, right? You, you may either be brought joyfully into the blessing of God or you may be vomited into the blessing of God, but he will get you into the blessing um, because God's grace is unrelenting. All right, that's the message I was going to preach. It was awesome. Um, but that's not the message I'm going to preach um, because there's a single word in this text that um, hijacked my thinking and honestly hijacked my message. It, my message ended up taking a hard right turn. Well, if you're on the left, it took a hard right turn. If you're on the right, it took a hard left turn um, because it gets political. So I'm just giving you a little heads up and let me show you why. Take a look at the description of Nineveh in verse 3. In verse 3, uh, it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. It was an exceedingly great city. That word exceedingly is the Hebrew word Elohim. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that is one of the names of God. Now, it's not Yahweh, the covenant name of God, but it is one of the names of God, the glorious one, Elohim. Literally, in Hebrew, what this, what this is saying is Nineveh, um, go to this city because Nineveh is a city great to God. That's what the phrase literally means. Go to Nineveh because it is a city great to God. Now that threw me. That was not what I was expecting. And, and let me tell you why. Um, Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians. Um, the Assyrians were the enemy of God's people. They, they were violent, wicked, and evil in their culture. Um, they were brutal uh, to anybody outside of their culture. So they, they led through intimidation. They wanted everyone to submit to them, and so they, they exercised the worst forms of inhumanity and, and cruelty. Um, to those that, that resisted them in, in an effort to terrify and bring into submission anybody else so they would not. They were um, violent. Um, they worshipped every false god. Um, I tried to look up the, the, the history of, of their religious devotion. Um, pretty much they're all there. And you're like, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, remember, false god worship in, in the ancient world is very different um, than just having different religions today. Uh, this basically meant that that in that city was a thriving industry of human suffering. Um, that meant human trafficking um, and, and slavery. It, it meant um, forced prostitution. It, it, it meant human uh, infliction of human suffering as well as um, infant um, murder. Um, it, when we're talking about the plethora of the false gods being present, we're basically talking about every form of... of um, evil possible. It was dark. It was ugly. That's the Assyrians, y'all. That's, that's the Assyrians. And, and during this point in time, the Assyrians, their power is waning. They're, they're, at this point, their, their dominion is Nineveh and, and a little bit of influence outside of that over some of, of the surrounding uh, nation states. But, but they're waning, right? It's like their candle is flickering. And, and what Jonah wants is for God to snuff it out. 
He's, he's like, man, these guys have been evil for long enough. They have been violent. Israel has suffered as a result of their cruel um, uh, uh, and violent tendencies. And, and man, I am ready for them to be snuffed out. And then God shows up. And God's like, Jonah, I want you to go warn them. Right? Why? To preserve them and protect them at the very moment that they might be destroyed. This is, Israel's doing great right now because the Assyrians, their dominion has shrunk. So Israel, historically, Israel, their borders are, are as far out as they've ever been. The, the GDP is great. Wall Street is booming. Unemployment is down. I mean, they're great. They're doing great. And, 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 and it's largely because the Assyrians have lost influence. And Jonah's like, man, let them die. God, bring the judgment. But he doesn't. Right? I'm going to give away a little bit, a little bit of a spoiler in the story. They will repent. Uh, Jonah re- preaches, and, and they will repent. And, and here's what happens, you guys. What ends up happening is they repent, which then sets the stage for the rise of Tiglath-Pileser III, which you probably never heard of him, but that's okay. He, he basically is the dude who brings Assyria back into a world-dominant power. He is brutal. He is violent. He is ambitious. And under his reign, Assyria once, it became, once again becomes one of the dominant world powers, which then sets the stage for Shalmaneser V. And Shalmaneser V is the Assyrian ruler who ends up conquering Samaria in 722 B.C., and that includes Israel. Israel will be carried off into captivity by the Assyrians because of the preaching of Jonah. At the moment that could have been destroyed, God uses Jonah to preserve them, which then sets the stage for their resurgence. And with their resurgence, a return of their violence against Israel. Now, of course, God was using them as a tool of discipline against the nation of Israel. Nothing happened outside of the, uh, the will of the plan of God. But, but I want you to catch this. God says, Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh because that's my city. It's great to me. I want you to go warn them. I want you to go act in love to them. Think about how Jonah saw this. Think about how Jonah would have experienced how this would have sounded to him, right? Jonah's an Israelite. He was raised under the teaching of the Torah. He had ordered everything in his life according to Jewish law. They served the one true God and followed his law. And everything he did, from what he ate to where he worked to how he ordered his day to what he did with his finances, it was all in devotion to this one true God. He had dedicated his entire life to following this God for for the glory of God and for the good of Israel. He was one of God's covenant people, and he was called to be a prophet of this God, right? He was a special uh, a spokesman for God. He had a position of honor um, in this, this, this culture. And, and God shows up and says, look, I, I have a special commission for you. I want you to leave Israel. I want you to step outside of Israel. I want you to travel to Nineveh. I want you to actually walk among your enemies. And I want you to warn them because that's my city and those are my people. I am the God of Nineveh. They don't know I'm the God of Nineveh. They worship all these false gods, but I'm the God over the gods. 
They don't know me. But I know them. And I love them. They're important to me. So arise, go, and proclaim to them the grace of repentance. Proclaim to them the grace of change so that they can be delivered. You guys, is it, is it any wonder that Jonah was reluctant? Are we really surprised that he resisted this call? Any of us think we wouldn't have resented this commission? From Jonah's perspective, this was absurd and self-destructive. But how did this look from God's perspective? Well, remember where Jonah just came from? (laughs) He just came from the belly of a fish. Why? Because he resisted the marching orders of his commander-in-chief. He he had gone AWOL. He committed treason and refused to obey the God he claimed to follow and ran the opposite direction. So that God had to raise up a storm, endangering not only a single ship of people, but who knows how many other ships on the sea, to the point where he was thrown into the water. And then, of course, he had to inconvenience a poor fish. I I seriously think the fish does not get enough sympathy. So so the poor fish swallowed this dude, was uncomfortable for three days with this, this man in his belly and they had to vomit him up that you know um and 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 then he's walking into the city you guys i am guessing he is still carrying the bleach marks and the aroma of grace because that that was god that ship and that fish were god's grace Rescuing him from his own destruction, rescuing him from his own rebellion, rescuing him from his, his, he was heading toward death. And God delivered him from that death and brought him back to blessing. Jonah. Jonah was one rescued by grace. And now he was being sent as an emissary of grace. See, from God's perspective, Israel was God's covenant people, no doubt about it, but Assyria was God's people too. They were all created in the image of God. They had all rebelled and broken trust with God, and they were all in need of grace. So when God looked out across the world, he saw Israel and he saw Nineveh, and all he saw were people in need of rescue people in need of grace. It's a fundamentally different perspective than the one that was informing Jonah's behavior. I think this has a powerful lesson for us today. Um, in our time, in our culture. I, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that I've, I, I, I have not ever experienced in our culture a more politically polarized time than the one we're living in now. Um, now, I'm not that old, uh, but I do vaguely remember Carter, um, definitely Reagan on. I mean, I was around during the formation and, and the ascendancy of the moral majority, and, you know, it, it's always been contentious, right? There have always been competing ideologies. There have always been loud voices on the margins that were crazy, angry. That They were always there. They just were kind of out there 
We live in a culture now of continuous outrage. I mean, it's exhausting. We live in a culture of continuous outrage. And in this crazy culture of outrage, we take joy in belittling those that we disagree with, and we take deep offense at being belittled by them. I would say that the last two weeks have been unusually charged, um, but I, I, I think that may not be accurate. I, I honestly think this is just part of the new normal. I don't know if the last two weeks have really been all that unusual. Um, here's the thing. All I have to do to, to remind you of just how loaded this is is bring up the name of Brett Kavanaugh. And some of you are feeling one thing and some of you are feeling something else. And some of you are tempted to look around and wonder which side are you on? Are you with us, the good guys, or are you with them, the bad guys? Hmm. All right, so there's a powerful lesson for us. And this time, in this culture, in this text, I got three points for you. The first, God doesn't pick sides. God doesn't pick sides. Listen, God was not on Jonah's team. God wasn't on Nineveh's team. Jesus was not on Simon the Zealot's team. Jesus was not on Matthew the tax collector's team. You know whose team God is on? God's team. <laughs> He's not on your team. He's not a card-carrying member of your club. He's not voting with you. He has one allegiance, and that's to His glory and His kingdom. He is the king over the greater kingdom. He's not on your team. He's on His own team. He isn't rooting for any one earthly kingdom. They're all His kingdoms. They're all His people. Whatever their color, whatever their language, whatever their background, they're they're all Imago Dei, created in the image of God. They're, they're all in need of grace, just like you and me. He isn't joining any partisan side. He's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's, he's not a Libertarian or whatever else there is floating around out there. He's just not. Listen, you guys, I think this is what we need to hear. God's glory is not improved by our success. And His, His power isn't limited by our failure. Like, we really need to hear that. When something goes our way, God's glory is not increased by our success. And when things go against us, God's power is not limited by our failure. We go from, yay, we did this for God, to hand-wringing, oh no, everything's falling apart. God's not on your team because God's above the teams. He's on His own team. And what this means is we need to pick God's side. Our first allegiance, and I'll make that clear, our first allegiance. There are other secondary allegiances, but our first allegiance needs to be to God's kingdom, not to our personal or political or social agendas. God's not on your side. 
The only question is whether you're on his. Yeah, but, but Steve, man, Steve, they're evil. The other side, they're evil. Do you know what their agenda is? Do you know what their platform is? Do you know what they're fighting for? Do you know what they're trying to promote? Do you know what they're trying to start or trying to end or trying to fund or try to defund? Do you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. And you're right. They're evil. But so are you. And so is your team. Your evil's just different than their evil. Your wickedness is just different than their wickedness. But we have this way of looking at life where we make other people's wickedness really, really big and, and our holiness really, really big, and we compare their wickedness to our holiness. We, we compare their, their weaknesses to our strengths, and we feel really superior. Yeah, they're, they're bad. So are you. You know why? Because all there is are people in need of grace. Right? There's God's side the one who loves, and there's our side, the people who need grace. There's only one kingdom. That's the kingdom of heaven. And it's not Nineveh, and it wasn't Israel, and it's not America. They're all God's kingdoms, but God doesn't belong to any one of them. They all belong to Him. Yeah, but see, what about abortion? Steve, what about racism? What about social justice? What about equality? What, what, about, what about fiscal responsibility? What about, what about, listen, I'm not saying you shouldn't have strong opinions. If you're hearing me say that you're supposed to be apolitical, you're, you're hearing what I'm not saying. I, I'm not saying you shouldn't have strong opinions. I'm not saying that, that you, you shouldn't be passionate about the things you believe in. I, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that you need to stop feeling arrogant pride that your side is right and their side is wrong. You, you need to stop feeling justified in dehumanizing the people you disagree with, of robbing them their voice, of, of just assuming that if they disagree with me, they're either stupid or they're evil. See, when you grow comfortable judging people who think differently than you and feeling superior to them and belittling them, and when you, when you grow comfortable judging people, you're, you're no longer walking as a faithful citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're no longer walking in the power of grace. You're, you're walking in the path of Jonah. You're walking in, in partisan divisiveness, assuming that your way is better than their way, your wisdom is better than their wisdom, your strengths are better than their weaknesses, and somehow God's kingdom is enriched simply because you exist. See, in God's kingdom, loving is winning. In God's kingdom, loving is winning. Listen, loving is more important than winning. We really need to hear that as well today. Loving is more important than winning. Listen, I know there's much at stake for our country right now. I know that. But there's even more at stake for the church. We are living in one of the most divisive periods in American history. And some of you are like all historical, and you're like, Steve, come on, man. Civil War, ever heard of it? 
Yeah. I don't honestly think we're that far off. I think we are living in one of the most polarized and divisive periods in American history. And it's in this season, and it is in seasons like this throughout history, seasons of epical change, seasons of, of, of serious historical import where things are shifting and changing and moving. It is in these seasons that the church will either rise and be the church. It'll be a, a light on a hill. It will be a city within a city. It will be a transformative community bringing grace and life and peace and goodness to the people of their communities or it will leave its first love and prostitute itself for political gain and earthly power. Listen, both Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector had to wrestle with this very thing. How did that work? How do you get Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, both <laughs> as disciples of Christ, living life together, honoring one another, doing super hard things together without being torn apart by their, by their deep-held convictions. I don't think Simon stopped being zealous about being a zealot. I, I don't think that, that Matthew necessarily changed his, his views on assimilation. And, you know, but how did that work? How did that work? Well, I'll tell you how it worked. They had to repent of their first identity. Simon the Zealot had to stop being Simon the Zealot and be Simon the follower of Christ. Matthew had to stop being Matthew the tax collector and had to become Matthew the one loved by God. Their primary identity could no longer be rooted in their political persuasions. Their primary circle of friends could no longer be bound together by their ideological and political leanings. The, the primary thing they knew about themselves was not, I'm conservative or I'm progressive. The primary thing that they knew about themselves was, I was desperately in need of grace. And God, in His love, met me where I needed to be met, and I have been undone in grace and remade in love. When that is our primary identity, we will find that we have more in common with followers of Christ than we do with those who are part of our voting block. We will find a greater affinity and a closeness, a greater fondness for those who have also been undone by grace and remade in love, those who love the God who first loved us, than we do for those who share the same fiscal convictions or social convictions. Simon and Matthew had to stop being the zealot and the tax collector, and they had to become Simon and Matthew, those loved by God and walking in grace. Their primary identity had to shift to being, I am a follower of Christ. Listen, you guys, listen. Loving is winning. Loving is winning. Some of you are like, no, Steve, winning is winning. <laughs> winning is winning, dude right? And now's the time. We need to win. We need to win, right? We win now. We can, we can affect this country for generations. Winning is winning, and we need to, we need to defeat 
our enemies. We need to defeat the ideologies that are competing with ours. We, we need to win if America is going to thrive. Listen to me, the power of God's kingdom is fundamentally different than the power of man's kingdom. See, our kingdoms are based on our ability to give life or destroy it. So we harness our political energies, our voting blocks, our finances, to try to give a voice to those that agree with us, to get the political persuasion of those who agree with us so that we can silence our enemies, we can disempower them, we can destroy them, we can kill them, we can snuff out their flickering flame. God's kingdom doesn't work like that. Jesus didn't show up as a conquering warrior. He didn't show up and, and, and defeat every other political force. He didn't, right? He could have. He could have shown up riding a war horse and bringing a thousand angels and defeated the entire... He didn't. The power of God's kingdom isn't based on the ability to defeat and destroy. The power of God's kingdom comes from love. The power of God's kingdom comes through resurrection, not destruction. The power of God's kingdom grows like yeast in bread or like a seed buried in the ground. Sometimes you're not sure it's even there. But it will transform everything. When Jesus rose from the dead, he, I don't know if you noticed, but he went away, right? He didn't come from the grave and like, okay, now I'm ready to take over the earth. No, he left, and he left his, his little band of followers with a message of love. And he's like, live in this message and share that message. And when you do that, the entire created order will be redeemed and restored. The power of resurrection will be let loose on earth, and everything will be redeemed and restored. Love. Loving is winning not killing. Loving is winning. Listen to me. We, we will win if we do not abandon our first allegiance. We will win if we refuse to sell our birthright in grace for a bowl of political power. We will win if we don't leave our first love. We will win even if our party loses, if we grow in the humble power of grace, we will win if we actually learn what it means to love our enemies, to love others even as we have been loved. The church will be the church. And we will have more power than we ever could as a block of political voters because we will be walking in the very power of resurrection. I'm going to pray for us. We'll share communion in a moment. That'll be introduced in a minute. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, rich in mercy, slow to anger. It's funny, Lord, how we think of the world as good guys and bad guys. 
And ironically, for some reason, we always think of ourselves with the good guys. Lord, you're the only good guy in the story. You're the hero. We're the ones that need a hero. You're the rescuer. We're the ones that need to be rescued. You're the one who loves us in spite of our rebellion, and we are the ones pridefully walking in our rebellion, <laughs> thinking we don't need you. Man, I thank you that you are such a humble and gracious and loving God. And Spirit, will you call our hearts to walk out the genuine principles of grace that, that we might be undone by the love we received and, and, and be remade, that we might be generous in that grace with others, that we will recognize that our enemies are yours too, that, that those who oppose our political agendas are created in your image. And there is a greater winning than defeating them. It's loving them. Spirit, would you form us into that kind of community? Spirit, would you allow Trailhead to be the kind of place where, where Trump supporters and Hillary supporters can sit by side by side and have something greater in common than their political ideologies and a greater passion and a love for one another than can be explained by the worldly power structures around us. Lord, would you allow us to walk in that kind of love, that kind of grace, that kind of freedom here? And even as we do, Lord, would you increase our influence in our community that we might become a place of sanity and safety in such a polarized and exhausting culture? You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.